0: I had not thought of violets late, the wild, shy kind that spring beneath your feet in wistful April days when lovers mate and wander through the fields in raptures sweet. The thought of violets meant florist shops and bows and pens and perfume papers fine and garish lights and mincing little fops and cabarets and soaps and deadening wines. So far from sweet real things my thoughts had strayed I had forgot wide fields and clear brown streams, the perfect loveliness that God has made, wild violets shy in heaven mounting dreams. And now, unwittingly, you've made me dream of violets and my soul's forgotten gleam.
1: And welcome to Bonnet to Dawn, the show that explores the lives and work of 18th,
2: 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week on the show, we are talking about the American poet, journalist, activist, and short story writer, Alice Dunbar Nelson.
1: Now, Alice is actually one of my favorite poets, and you have just heard one of her most popular pieces entitled Sonnet. I always call it violets, which is wrong. And Lauren? Yeah, that's violets. Guys, it's called violets. Um, that was read by the very lovely Stacy Thomas who um, read out uh, Bury Me in a Free Land a few weeks ago by Francis Harper. I want so Stacy to read
2: every week.
1: Yeah, I know, right? Oh, She's you can't the see the, the show.
2: eyebrow wobbles when I do them <laughs> to you at the camera. <laughs> okay, that's not good. <laughs> this
1: isn't, you know, not a visual medium. So now Dunbar Nelson is actually someone that I did learn about in school. I think the running theme on the show is I'm constantly saying, I've never heard about this person. Why not? And then just angrily shaking a fist at all of my English teachers. But okay. I do know about her. Um, This is due to the fact that I took a course on the Harlem Renaissance in college. And Hannah, I do know that I've thrown around that term a couple of times, Mm -hmm. the Harlem Renaissance. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before. I have just always assumed that you have, but maybe I'm being very American-centric or, you know,
2: American. Yeah, I know what the Harlem Renaissance is. Oh, do you? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's like a dance move Mm. (laughs) or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's
1: see here. Going back to that knowledge that I acquired many, many years ago, um, the Harlem Renaissance was actually this sort of burst of African-American talent that emerged in the early 20th century, sort of around uh, 1918. So we're talking literary, artistic, musical, intellectual people like Langston Hughes, Josephine Baker, Duke Ellington, and Zora Neale Hurston. They all came into prominence around this time. And the movement, the heart of the movement was in Harlem, New York, but it wasn't really exclusive to Harlem. I'm going to say it's more of a northern thing, but I could be totally wrong on that.
2: So is that because it, like, started in Harlem and then it, like, spread, or? Well, okay, if you kind of take it back,
1: like, the timing and the location make sense when you sort of remember that slavery ended in the 1860s, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So then following that, you have the great migration of African Americans trying to escape things like the KKK and Jim Crow laws, and so they're all moving north where they have... Slightly better opportunities, really. That's the thing. Um, so it's this generation that's like, you know, 40, 60 years after slavery that are the children and the grandchildren of slaves. And many of them are actually, you know, college educated mm-hmm. or middle class. So they're the ones that sort of kick off this artistic movement that. Well, they've got the really opportunity to write exactly. the first time. So Totally. And so that's why it's kind of centered more north. Um, Harlem was a white neighborhood in New York, but then after the Great Migration, you do have a very concentrated African-American neighborhood there. And um, then you have all of the jazz clubs that spring up. So this is also the jazz age. So Alice Moore was born in 1875 in New Orleans. Her mother was a former slave and her father was a sailor, question mark? I think so. I think got the research right there. He wasn't really around for Alice um, or her sister. She was pretty much just raised by a single mother, which is pretty amazing because um, Alice actually ended up going to college. She graduated from Strait University in 1892. And then she published her first collection of poems and short stories in 1895 entitled Violets and Other Tales. So, Sonnet is in Violets and Other right, okay. which is why yeah. I think it's always called, yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, she's only so, 20.
1: Yeah. yeah, she's an overachiever. Yeah, and it's okay. something I really um, pick up when I'm reading anything that she's writing. Like, she is going for it, full steam ahead. And she's also a very busy lady.
2: But that, I think that's something that you've told me about before as well, that, like, um that women of color like feel this need to mm-hmm. overachieve or to like perform or to like prove their worth maybe more. Yes. As like a justification of being there. So yes. if she, you know, she's in college, she's like, I'm gonna write, so I'm gonna be like 20. I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna be the best and just smash it out.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna publish the first collection of poems and short stories by an African American woman. And was she? And then also, she was, yeah. Wow, okay. And also sort of like, which we will definitely talk about a little bit more later, never really acknowledged those accomplishments either. Instead, she's just like full steam ahead. Just keeps going. Just keeps going. Like, right after she publishes this book, she moves up to New York City. She co-founded and taught at a school for girls called the White Rose Mission, and then just a few years later, in 1898, she marries Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Does that name mean anything to you?
2: Mm, no. Just,
1: <laughs> it's just sorry. my test. It's my test for our, you know, overseas. Um, so, I I mean, Paul, Paul Lawrence, Lawrence Dunbar. You can't
2: base it on me just saying no every time you ask <laughs> me. <laughs> Hannah, do you know what time it is? No. Hannah, what did you have for dinner? No. Hannah, no. do you know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is? Uh. No, no. Um, He's a very famous
1: poet. I actually probably know a little bit more about him because he uh, lived in Dayton, Ohio. That's where you're from. I am not from Dayton. I went to school in Columbus, Ohio. So Our friend um, Megan is from Dayton. Our friend Megan is from Dayton. So, um, yes, I know a bit about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and um, he's got a literary home in Dayton. So, stop on by. Sadly, Alice never lived there. I would have gone, actually, a few months ago, but then I was like, oh, Alice never lived here. Okay, never mind. Um, easy. <laughs> yeah. Rude. He was sort of regarded as like the Negro Poet Laureate. So he's super famous. He actually does die before the Harlem Renaissance kind of kicks off, but he is the inspiration for a lot of the poets that come to prominence during that right, time. Okay. So, yeah, so he's super famous, and she actually does become sort of the widow of this, like, super famous writer. Their marriage was a turbulent one. Um, Paul was a very abusive alcoholic. She actually left him after he um, beat her so badly, she nearly died.
2: Oh.
1: Yeah, so super depressing marriage. Um, she left him in 1902, they never divorced. He then died in 1906. Um, sadly, when you read about Alice, and it's she's still often referred to as just Paul's wife, Paul's yeah, widow. Okay. <laughs> it's really upsetting. Even though she went on to have this really long and fascinating career, um, the, the headline for her obituary said, wife of poet. Oh. Yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, while she was living and working, she was often, like, keeping his memory alive as well and like going to like Paul Lawrence Dunbar nights where they were celebrating his poetry. So she had to carry that for, you know, the rest of her life. Just like biting her tongue. I know it's really hard. In addition to um, teaching for most of her life, Alice was a traveling lecturer. She was a field organizer for the suffrage movement. She was a campaigner for anti-lynching bills she was a journalist with a popular column. She co-edited and published The Wilmington Advocate. And she was the publisher of The Dunbar Speaker and Entertainer. So this woman has this insane legacy. Um, and, all, of course, during all that time, she continued to write and publish short stories, essays, and poetry.
2: I guess they didn't have kids.
1: No, they didn't. <laughs> um. And also Alice was married three times.
2: Really? Can I just say So this yeah, is all yeah, happening yeah. while she's marrying Multiple just loads of dudes. dudes. <laughs> I don't mean I don't yes. mean anything by that, but you know, like three three marriages, yeah. that's a lot, right?
1: After Paul died, um, she also got secretly married to a man, I believe he was twelve years her junior. Ooh, saucy. Yeah. So she got married to a younger man, but then they got divorced quite quickly oh and then she remarried um bob nelson Mm -hmm. and that was her husband for the rest of her life and um he was a great like friend and supporter and he was also a a writer and publisher but um rather broke right which yeah yeah which was which comes up quite a bit In 1986, her diaries were published and they reveal this crazy busy woman Mm -hmm. um, who was a lot, lot more than Paul's wife or Bob's wife or that mystery secret man's wife. (laughs) (laughs) So I read this piece uh, about six or seven months ago in the Langston Hughes review by Dr. Tara T. Green entitled Not Just Paul's Wife. Alice Dunbar's Literature and Activism, and I have to say, if you guys, (laughs) it's a great title, right? I mean, obviously it was like it was written just for me when I was (laughs) doing my Alice Dunbar Nelson research. I was like, yes, you are right. Um, If you guys have JSTOR access, you know, if you have a library card or if you're a student or a professor, I highly recommend you um, read this article. It is really, really interesting. Um, which is why, of course, I had to find the author and get her on the show today.
2: Dr. Tyra Green is a Linda Arnold Carlisle Excellence Professor, oh, it's longer, of Women's and Gender Studies and Professor mm-hmm. of African-American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, Borough. Yeah, Greensboro. That's a long sentence yeah it is that's a lot okay her most recent book reimagining the middle passage black resistance in literature television and song provides an interdisciplinary perspective on african descendants resistance to social death during the middle passage and in spaces symbolic of the middle passage
1: what inspired you to write the book why did you want to get started on that
3: Because I'm from the New Orleans area, and Mm -hmm. she was born in New Orleans, and it just so happened that I went to the university that um, is, is the result of one of the institutions that she attended. She went to straight university that merged with New Orleans University to become Dillard University. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and that's when I learned about her work, when I was an undergraduate student at Dillard University in New Orleans. And she introduced me to a New Orleans that I did not know. Mm -hmm. And that experience, that introduction stuck with me for years. And eventually I would have some questions and that led me to the papers at the University of Delaware.
1: What have been like some of the sources that you've been going to to help uh, write the book?
3: Well, she was kind of a pack rat, so which is mm-hmm. great.
1: Yeah, seriously.
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Let's um, thumbs up for the pack rat. So she kept papers about her life as it started about 1895 when she released her first book, her first collection of short stories, and. Poetry. And that was also the year in which she received her first correspondence from Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who would be her first husband. Mm-hmm. And she kept papers until about 1931, 32. The, and at least that's what we have available to us in the archive right. and up at University of Delaware. And so boxes and boxes of her personal papers That would include letters, um, published works or drafts of works that would become published um, for diaries, scrapbooks, newspaper clippings, all sorts of things are at the University of Delaware.
1: So I loved uh, that piece that you wrote um, where you discussed the Black Women's Club movement in the 1800s. Could you tell our audience a little bit about that movement and just, you know, how it was a response to sort of being a Victorian female?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there is some earlier work that was published by people like Paula Giddings and um, Angela Davis as well. And those authors give us a glimpse into some of the work these women were doing. And that just included, it, it started off basically with... Um, Josephine St. Pierre, um, St. Ruffin, um, sort of getting women organized. She was up in Boston, mm-hmm. a light skinned woman of African descent. And Black women were not allowed to be involved with the white women's clubs. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, what they decided to do as this black emerging middle class was um, coming about because these were women who were particularly in the South who were able to get a college education and had some concerns about advancing the race, of course, because slavery had occurred and it was abolished in 1865. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so these would really be, for the most part, if their parents were enslaved, then they would be the first generation of individuals who were born free. Mm-hmm. And knowing what people felt about people of African descent and particularly women, that you know, there were these stereotypes out there that black people, first of all, couldn't be educated. There were questions around whether or not they should have full citizenship rights. And we know that, in fact, they did not. Women in general were not allowed to vote. So it wasn't just that black people had restrictions upon them, but also that women had restrictions on them that they had to deal with as well. And so these black women said, wait a minute. I want to be taken seriously as somebody who can contribute to a society. Many of them were teachers. Some of them were also in the healthcare field. So they would go on to nursing schools. And in fact, there was a major push for that. And um, they were doing things in the community. And these small chapters in the communities actually had committees that were about education that, um, emphasize, um, healthcare that, um, in fact, the Phyllis Wheatley club in new Orleans would start what would become a hospital. Mm -hmm. So, um, so these women were just trying to improve their communities. And by 1895, they all got together and formed the national association of colored women and um, Alice Dunbar Nelson was not only the recording secretary for that organization, but as a member of the Phyllis Wheatley Club, she also wrote for the Women's Era, which was really the first black newspaper focused on issues related to black women at the time. And so she was one of two voices from the South. There was a, another woman in Texas who would regularly write for that as well.
1: And what sort of pieces um, was Alice writing?
3: Well, it was a great time because black newspapers were really important and they were developing during this period. Mm-hmm. And so for this one to, it was the only one that focused only on black women. So it spoke to the work that the women were doing as part of the Phyllis Wheatley club. So it may have been about, um, something that they had organized to celebrate the youth in the community. It, first of all, it announced that they had started a, a Phyllis Wheatley club. That was number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then it would follow from that. Some of the activities that they were doing. So again, celebrating the youth. Um, it was about if they, when they started the hospital, that only had a few beds, and the reason for it is because um, Charity Hospital, which you probably know about, was segregated at the time. And of course, Charity Hospital is is what it sounds like. It was it was supposed to be a hospital for everyone, but the problem was that black doctors could not actually practice in the hospital and that black people would be segregated as well. And Mm -hmm. so then they said, let's fix that by starting our own. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was what they tried to do. And so then of course, when you have different activities, you have to have fundraisers. And so she would also talk about the fundraisers as well. Gotcha.
1: Mm -hmm. Um. Now, with your Dunbar Nelson research, like I know you've you've gone through I'm sure her poems, essays speeches, just everything that's in that archive um is are there any novels in there? Do you think she had a novel in her or was there just too many other things to write honestly
3: she did. I think that her lane and what she was best at that she doesn't get credit for is really being a crafter of the short story
0: mm-hmm.
3: So um, I, I don't want her work in that area to um, look like it was sort of minor work or, or that it didn't work well because she can pack in quite a bit of punch in those mm-hmm. short stories in terms of. Uh, you know, what people call local color. So right, grasping right. the nuances and contours of the New Orleans area of the time, but also punching and hitting at some political issues, inequalities that were taking place at the time as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I certainly encourage people to look closely at her short story collections Um so that would be uh, where I would start. But she did try very hard to publish longer works. And, and it was almost as if it was trying to exercise every day. For those of us who don't like to exercise what we do, mm-hmm. uh, we, every um, push up counts. Mm-hmm. And so when she was writing, The Modern um, Undine, for example, which is a novella that was not published, but it is available now in the three-volume collection that was edited by Gloria Hull some years ago. She writes in a letter to Paul Lawrence Dunbar the number of uh, words. Actually, it's not The Modern Undine, now that I'm thinking about it. It was was a novella called... um, confessions of a married lady. I think that that's the full title, but she refers to it as the confessions. And she talks about the number of words that she writes a day. So I presume that Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who had written novels and some really good ones, probably told her to try to focus on a certain number of words per day. And um, that's what she does. So she counts out those words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We all do. I relate to that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people got paid according to words also. Mm-hmm. So um, that probably has something to do with it as well. But she that was not published. Uh, the Modern Undine, which is based on a water spirit um, a kind of goddess. Uh, that was not published. But again, it is available now. And she did write a novel called This Lofty Oak. Um, it looks like she probably finished that around 1930, which is the year that the subject of that, nove- uh, that um, novel passed away. And it's based on the life and the work of a woman who was her boss when she mm-hmm. was principal and Alice Dunbar Nelson was a teacher, an English teacher at Howard it's now called Howard School, um, Howard High School. At the time, it was Howard School. And it's based on the life of Edwina Cruz, who was the principal of that school for some years.
1: And didn't she have an affair with Edwina Cruz?
3: She did. Um, and I won't say that it was an affair. I'm not sure that she was married at the time. I think she was okay. between her first and second husband. But she did have an intimate Relationship with Edwina Cruz for several years, and um, she was an older woman. Um, she was a woman of Latin descent and German descent, and she had uh, moved to the United States at a very young age and was able to make her way up to Wilmington, Delaware, and to develop the school from a one-room classroom <clears throat> into um a, a very developed, complex uh, institution mm-hmm. for that was segregated. So um, much of the work that she did at Duena Cruz was around equity. Um, access for students of the area, but also other kinds of things like um, it's helping to establish the NAACP chapter, for example, in Wilmington, Delaware. Man,
1: I can't believe how busy Alice Dunbar Nelson was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I I haven't fully read her diary yet, um, but there is that one entry where she talks about it's like being 46 and being sort of like disappointed. Yes, yes. And um, I'm just like, oh, my God, if you look at your your life and your work, like it's just it's just so hard to imagine, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, are there any like diary entries that sort of you relate to or favorite anecdotes uh, about Alice that sort of I don't know that you like really empathize with?
3: Well, that was the one that came to mind at first, and that's Mm -hmm. usually the one that I um, quote in Twitter or when I give presentations. But something else that strikes me about her is that she had a wonderful sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so there are points in her life where we have to laugh. So we can find the humor in her diaries, but we can also find that she was a woman who Fiercely enjoyed her independence as much as she was committed to her family. So she had a sister who had been abandoned by her husband. So she co-parented her sister's children and she was there for her mother. And so for most of her life, she always lived with her mother and her sister until her mother passed away. Um, And then later on, she would move to Philadelphia to be with her third husband who had received a political appointment there. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can see her independence when she purchases a car that she doesn't know how to drive. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so there are several references that she makes to trying to drive this car. Um, and sometimes I imagine her, this is the sort of earlier days of certainly of women driving. Um, but also she wasn't able to even afford to purchase this car, let alone maintain it. Um, and certainly could not drive the car very well. And apparently she had this big dog. Um, so sometimes she would load the dog into the car and it would be um, maybe her mother and her sister and whomever else where she was going to some sort of organizational meeting or something like that. And, you know, she's flying down the road and trying to figure out how to shift this, the, uh, the gears and this kind of thing. And it's just the, the sort of picture of her doing something that she shouldn't really be doing, obviously. I mean, this isn't a safe thing, but it also speaks to not only her independence, her drive for independence, but even the kinds of things that she tried to do to advance women. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if, if a woman could not drive a car, I, I'm only the second um, generation that can drive a car in my own family. So that means that you have to rely on a man to drive, probably, or if he doesn't have a car, then, of course, you have to rely on some sort of public transportation or or hopes that somebody will take you. And sometimes she did talk about that as well, and how infuriating it was to not have access to do something as simple as, take her mother to go place flowers on her niece's grave.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the, even that something that seems small was, um, it had a major impact on her, her ability to be able to do the kinds of things that she wanted to do. Do you teach Dunbar Nelson at all? I do. In fact, this week, my students- Oh, are um, looking at her letters, her correspondence with um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Mm -hmm. And so on Tuesday, they read maybe the first 200 letters and we'll go through the rest of those letters on Thursday. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. So that is an experience. The class is focused on Black feminist archival work. And so they um, have looked at some of the theories around black feminist work, and now they are looking at, at the archives and using those theoretical um, studies to try to figure out who this woman was in her marriage, how did her identity change, right? Um, what did respectability mean to a woman during this era, and um, why did she react or respond in ways that she did so it's 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 a good class
1: i mean that sounds amazing i want to take that class mm-hmm. <laughs> right now mm-hmm. um what have like what are some of the reactions because i do find that to be i haven't like gotten real into those letters right mm-hmm. but i do find that marriage to be a little bit baffling um Mm -hmm. So how are they responding to the letters and to the correspondence?
3: Well, so far, one student has noticed that Alice Dunbar, I mean, Alice Moore, excuse me, was, we can see the domesticity. And so she noticed that Alice seems to be writing from home and talking about, um, home and her personal life a little bit more than Paul Lawrence, who's talking more about his work mm-hmm. and about his life outside of the home. So, um, despite the fact that of course, Alice had a very, uh, robust, particularly in 1895, her reputation is really kind of exploding on a national level, which mm-hmm. is why he gets in touch with her in the first place. So I thought that that was interesting, that students are were paying attention to where she was and, and the kinds of subjects that she broaches with him or responds to and how she responds to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Tomorrow, we are also going to talk about those letters in relation to her short story, Tony's Wife, which she writes, of course, um, which is published after she marries him and after she's um, had some abusive, um, many abusive situations with him as well. So Mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I just (laughs) finished Tony's Wife like earlier this morning.
3: Oh, good, good.
1: So I'm really, I'm really curious. um, How do, uh, what short stories do people respond to in your class? Um,
3: Well, I've taught Tony's wife before and Mm -hmm. students have a, have had a strong reaction to that. I've, I've taught um, Stones of the Village, which I think doesn't have as much as a reaction. So I think Tony's wife is better Mm to teach Uh, Because I think that it resonates more with students in terms of understanding or having some sense of what domestic violence is Mm -hmm. and thinking about the role that religion plays. It doesn't have to be Catholicism, even though it is Mm -hmm. in that particular short story. So uh, what's good about it is that students don't have to know anything at all about New Orleans to be able to analyze and to have really good questions about her short stories. Yeah, her poetry certainly um, is good to look at. I would certainly say she was a journalist who wrote editorials. And Mm -hmm. so again, looking back at the collection that Gloria Hull published we can see quite a number of her editorials and columns there. So um, that gives people a sense of the sort of punching that she did without having to make it interesting in fictional ways. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's good to be able to pair those up the some of the editorials that she wrote, particularly around voting which I think is something we're not going to get away from that question, <laughs> questions right? Like voting and access and so on and so forth. And so that's an area that I think that students would be able, that would resonate with students. But some of my favorite stories of hers, I always try to pull people out of the new Orleans work a little bit because she wrote that when she was younger and it's really good work, but she, she was always writing. So there's also the stinks, street stories um, and those deal particularly with uh, children Mm -hmm. and poor children. So um, sometimes they are children with disabilities and, and their children in relationship to their parents or to a nun or to um, people who are coming in and volunteering. Mm -hmm. So again, It still has the socio-political commentary that's there. But her love of children, even though she was not a mother herself, she did mother um, and she was a teacher for most of her life. Mm -hmm. So um, the kind of specificity and the caring um, that she shows in those short stories is amazing.
2: And we are back so you know i'm bringing it back to austin right away okay i can do it i can make a connection um Mm -hmm. i listened to this interview a few days ago actually and um this thing just kept like sticking in my brain and it's just like how important it is for women to have access to travel like Mm -hmm. so we know that Like, in Jane Austen's time, like, women of her class especially, they were traveling by the grace of their male companions, right? So Jane Austen would wait around for weeks and weeks, waiting for her father or one of her brothers to come and pick her up from where she was and then take her to where she's going to be. And she'd just be, like, waiting on them, like, on their whim. Like, if they didn't want to travel or if business was keeping them in town, they would just be there, Mm -hmm. you know, for certain amounts of time um and so i know obviously by the time we get to alice dunbar nelson's time we've got things like public transport we've got trains we've got buses we've got cars but i don't know like how safe like did she have access to that how safe was that was it like was she free to come and go and so just the story of her like getting that car not necessarily being able to drive or the best at driving but just taking that and just being like I like I need this this is going to make a difference in my life this is going to give me the freedom that I need to just live a life and be independent and just just like get out there I just it really moved me and just thinking about like yeah just it was hard then and I imagine harder for her right it was like expensive
1: Absolutely. It's kind of crazy. I mean, it shows you what kind of person she was. She was so determined. And and also travel was such a huge part of her life. And I mean, driving a car while a woman and driving a car while black during that time. I mean, it's wild. And just for her to even be like, I don't really have the money for this. I don't really even know how to do this, but I need it. Yeah. It's funny. If you read her diaries, there is so much in there about driving a car and about, car, like, romanticizing cars. And it's really romanticizing, like, freedom is what mm-hmm. it is. It's
2: really, yeah. But that's immediately what it, what it made me think of, like, straight yeah. away.
1: Now, I do want to touch briefly on Alice's diaries. You could produce an entire show just talking about these diaries. So... I am not going to do them justice. Um, I will say that they are equally fascinating and frustrating, Mm -hmm. like, for many, many reasons. But I'll just touch on a couple. Um, One, I did read them right after I read Anne Lister's Diaries, Mm -hmm. and I found a lot of similarities there. And it's not just the fact that actually both of these women, quite frankly, discuss their numerous lesbian affairs, but... Also, just how ambitious and busy and frustrated they were with the world, which shouldn't be too surprising, like, given their sexuality and their gender and Alice's race and the age in which they lived. But what's also fascinating about them is that there's something very administrative about both journals. Yeah. Now, like, Alice's diaries give you this up-close and personal insight into, you know, the battle for civil rights which we always talk about in big terms, right? In big, sweeping, almost romantic language. But um, when you're, like, actually reading about the details, like, you see how, like, bogged down her day is by travel arrangements, by coworker complaints, by money woes, by casual racism. Mm-hmm. Not so casual racism. It's It's a lot. Like, it's actually kind of a lot to take in when you're reading it. And um, well, yeah, it's, a, again, li- it's I- a
2: life, isn't it? It's just like yeah. a real life. Yes. And it actually
1: does feel very present, too. Mm-hmm.
2: It feels
1: like you're talking about the not so distant past. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is 100 a years 100 ago. Years, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's kind of the same, same stuff. But I don't know. I just, you know, we're used to talking about the broad strokes the lives of women writers so it is really nice to like get down to sort of the details and the feelings and um i think a lot about this particular entry
2: hannah would you read it this is from the diary of alice Barnelson. i lay in bed this morning thinking 46 years old and nowhere yet it is a pretty sure guess if you haven't gotten anywhere by the time you're 46 you're not going to get very far Humiliating, of course, but we may as well look facts in the face. Yeah. Mm. I know,
1: it's hard. There's a lot of entries that are like that. Um, In 1920, Alice was fired from her teaching position for her political activity. And the loss of the income, like, of course, you know, impacted her financial situation. But it also really took its toll on her physical and mental health. And, you know, she struggled to make an income from writing and lecturing she really tried her best and she was I mean she was hustling but you know publishers were super late on payments if at all they weren't they didn't really you know respect Alice they didn't really have to you know she didn't have an agent she didn't have like a big bestseller so
2: life was a constant hustle for her and hey some things don't change some things really don't change pay freelancers on time (laughs) right Right? Or at all. That's why I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't rely on that income. <sighs> that was hectic. I know. Ugh. So, um, yeah, I just, I think about that passage
1: all the time. And I'm like, gosh, I wonder if we had the diaries for, you know, some of our other writers, if they would have some similar thoughts, you know, if they can't, it's hard to see the big picture when you're in the shit, I guess. You should
2: read Louisa May Alcott's diary. Oh, I should, yes. It's like super short, succinct. There's one entry that I think about all the time and I can't remember how old she turned, but she it's her birthday. And she's like, well, it's my birthday and I didn't get any presents. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure she's like 30 or in her 30s. And I'm like, oh, me either. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Louisa.
1: Those Ugh. presents do dry up in your 30s, though, I have to
2: say. It's I so mean, sad. me and Louisa s- still feeling that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was upset.
1: Gosh, I mean, hate to end this show on a downer note, but we're gonna, guys. <laughs> I'm going to, though, we're going to have Stacy read one more poem. Maybe that'll cheer us up a little bit. But first, Hannah, would you like to tell
2: everyone where they can connect with us on the internet? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at bonnetsatdawn. You can email us, bonnets at, dawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook by searching bonnetsatdawn and answering those cheeky little questions just to prove that you're not a robot. And shout out to, I've forgotten your name, who have joined <laughs> and assured me that you were not a robot. Oh, thank you. Noted. Thank you. Great. I oh, appreciate <laughs> that. Definitely not a robot. So we are going to leave you guys
1: with "I Sit and Sew," another one of my favorite pieces by Alice Dunbar Nelson. Uh, this was actually Alice's response to Black nurses um, being blocked from being able to serve in World War One. She was really afraid that um, Black soldiers would not be able to get the care that oh, they needed. Yeah, I know. Guys, I I told you we're ending on a depressing note today. I'm sorry. But um, the poem is great. The poem is fabulous. And I think it sort of encapsulates like her career in general. Like it still has this sort of like wistful, hopeful, battling note to it that I really appreciate.
0: I sit and sew a useless task, it seems. My hands grown tired, my head weighed down with dreams. The panoply of war, the martial tread of men. Grim-faced, stern-eyed, gazing beyond the ken Of lesser souls who eyes have not seen death, nor learned to hold their lives but as a breath. But I must sit and sew. I sit and sew. My heart aches with desire. That pageant terrible, that fiercely pouring fire. On wasted fields and writhing grotesque things. Once men, my soul in pity flings. Appealing cries, yearning only to go. There in that holocaust of hell, those fields of woe. But I must sit and sow. The little useless seam, the idle patch. Why dream I here beneath my homely thatch? When there they lie in sodden mud and rain, pitifully calling me the quick ones and the slain. You need me, Christ. It is no roseate dream. That beckons me, this pretty futile seam. It stifles me. God, must I sit and sew?